would invite you to do that by turning in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And as you are doing so, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we are going to be uh, focusing our attention this morning on verses 1 through 16. So let us give our attention to the Word of God now. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what God would say to the church this day. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than sixty years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse... <clears throat> But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, one of the dominant pictures in Scripture for the people of God, and I think one of the most precious, is the fact that we are actually brothers and sisters, that, that we are a family. It, it's sort of remarkable to step back and realize that Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven. And the reason that Jesus would say, I want you to pray like this, our Father, is because our Father really is our Father. Or consider this, the eternal Son of God, our Savior, He is also our elder brother. He is, Romans 8, 29, the firstborn among many brothers. And the Holy Spirit, he actually unites us to the Father and the Son. It is the Spirit of God, John 14, 18 through 20, who brings us into communion with Father and Son. So, so we are, according to the Bible, part of God's family. And let us just very quickly revel in the fact that we are part of God's family by grace and by grace alone. 
we are not born into this family like you or I are just sort of born into our earthly family. No, what Jesus says is, if you want to be part of the family of God, then you have to be born again. And so one of the glories of the gospel is this. When we are born again, we are born again into God's family. Think for a second of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. We are told that the Father has predestined us for adoption. Part of God's very eternal purpose is to make a family with us in it. Or consider Christ shed his blood to bring us into this family, Ephesians 2.13. And the same Holy Spirit who indwells me is the same Holy Spirit who indwells you, uniting us together, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, again, as brothers and sisters. And the point not to be missed is this. This is all a work of God. It's all a work of God because we are told in John 1.13 that we are born again not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it is in and through the gospel of God and the grace of God that we are brought into the very family of God. And I say all that because this is the background to our passage. This is just sort of the the air that we breathe. This is just sort of in the water. This is who we are. This is our identity. This is why Paul can so casually and without explanation mention in 1 Timothy 3.15 that we are the household of God. So look around. This is your family. This is your brothers and sisters, your fathers and your mothers. I say all of this because it is this foundation, the foundation of us being a family, that gives rise to this beautiful skyscraper that is in front of us. Here's what I mean. Paul has spent the bulk of this letter addressing Timothy directly. And and please don't misunderstand me. He's going to continue to do that. But at this part of the letter, Paul begins to sort of widen his gaze a bit. And with the current of the church being a family of God, with that current sort of carrying him along, Paul now switches gears, and he's going to begin to give inspired instruction to different groups in the congregation, different groups in the family. You'll notice in the first couple of verses, he specifically addresses older and younger men and women. And then for the bulk of this section, he is going to address widows. But as we begin to unfold Scripture, I want to make sure that we do not detach it from the reality of you and I being a family. If you find out there is a massive flood It will do no good, and it will make no sense if you show up with a hose. We don't need a hose in the middle of a flood. Similarly, if you and I lose sight of the fact that we are a family, then none of what we see this morning will make any sense. It is the grace of God making us a family of God that makes sense of what is in front of us. 
And so as we begin to look at verses 1 and 2, as a family, how ought we to relate to one another? Now, of course, in verses 1 and 2, specifically, Timothy is, uh, Paul is addressing Timothy and his relationships in the congregation. But those relationships that Timothy has with the older men and women and younger men and sisters, it no doubt spills over and speaks to us as well. Remember, we are not strangers. We are not co-workers. We are not even merely fellow citizens. We are a family. And the point that I'm trying to get across is that our interactions one with another should be rooted in that reality. And so you'll notice, Paul mentions four groups in the family of faith. Older men, younger men, older women, and younger women. And then when it, so when it comes to the older men, Scripture is very clear, if you look at verses 1 and 2, older men ought not to be rebuked. That's what verse 1 says, right? Do not rebuke an older man. Now, let's be clear, that doesn't mean that older men are above the law. That's not the point. It's worth pointing out that the word that Paul uses there for rebuke, it is a very intense word. It is extremely sharp. The literal sense of the Greek term is to beat something or someone with your fists, And so metaphorically, it's the idea of beating down someone with your words. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is, when it comes to your relationship with older men, that ought not to happen. You should not be beating down men in the church who are your senior. Instead, verse 1, encourage him as you would a father. So let me just very clearly and specifically address some of you younger men and some of you younger women. It would not be inappropriate, in fact, it would not be out of bounds to address older men in the congregation with yes, sir, or no, sir. It would not be inappropriate. This is a way that you encourage. This is a way that you show deference. This is a way that you honor those who are your senior. This is true. You'll notice in verse 1, this has nothing to do with who's an elder. This has nothing to do with who's in church leadership. This has to do with treating older men in the family of faith with respect. So yes sirs and no sirs are not out of bounds. Notice though that in verse 1, younger men are to be related to as brothers. So, so you see, it's a different relationship, and because it's a different relationship, you relate differently. Because in this sort of relationship, there is going to be some jabs. There's going to be some ribbing, right? This is what brothers do, but they do it in love, right? Brothers roughhouse. Brothers joke. But at the same time, brothers also protect and encourage. And I just want to say that that's good and that's right. This is how a family works. As you move on, you're also cautioned in how to relate to women. Specifically in verse 2, we ought to regard older women in the church as mothers. So, men, old and young alike, please hear this, you should probably speak to women differently than you do men. Now, I know for some of you that's a big shock. It shouldn't be but it might be. 
We ought to regard such ladies in the church as mothers, which means they are worthy of respect and honor and affection. You ought to talk and treat older women in the church differently than you do younger men in the church. And then finally, Paul mentions younger women in verse 2 ought to be treated as sisters. I think what the text is getting at here is that there should be a, a measure of care and concern for those younger single ladies in the church, particularly men. You should treat such young ladies as you would treat your blood sisters. And that means that you protect them and that you love them and that you look after them. It also means that the entirety of the relationship should be marked by, it should consist of, end of verse 2, all purity. Men, you should treat young ladies in the church, and I would go so far as to say this includes young ladies who you might be dating or courting. You, you are either married or not married. There is not a middle category that we invent. You are either married or you're non-married. If you are non-married, young men, you should treat that girl as you would your physical blood sister. It ought to be marked by purity. Everything that you do with her should be above board. But it also means that avoidance isn't the answer. I say that because sometimes Christian men treat other Christian women as if they are a walking temptation, as if every woman is just sort of a Jezebel. But church, that is not how things actually work. Let me ask you this. How will Timothy pastor the entire church if he has to avoid half of the congregation? How will you and I serve one another and live out the endless one another's found throughout Scripture if we simply dodge half the congregation? You have to understand that we can't minister, we can't do what Christ has called us to do if we treat the opposite sex like a contagious disease. So avoidance is not the answer. What is the answer? I would suggest to you that the answer is the same for every question. The answer is this. In your relationships, you should guard your heart so that you have a purity of heart, so that there is a devotion to Christ, a submission to His Word, and a love for the good, the true, and the beautiful. This should mark every relationship that you have. But neither should we operate just with sort of a, a spirit of naivete. We have to mingle all of this with wisdom and accountability and transparency and prudence. This is how relationships work. So zoom out with me for a minute. Because in all of this, in all of these family dynamics, you've got older and younger men and women do you see what all of this is sort of presupposing? What verses 1 and 2 are assuming of a church? The grand assumption is that we have relationships with one another. You see? 
Verses 1 and 2 make no sense if we don't know one another. And specifically, if the older and the younger don't have relationships with one another. You see, there is this modern idea where only teenagers should hang with teenagers. And only retired folks should pal around with retired folks. And only young families should spend time with young families. And only teenagers and 20-somethings who are single should just sort of hang with one another. I want you to see that that militates against the very unity that we have in Christ. We should have relationships with one another so that I have older men in my life that are like a father. And I have younger men in my life that are like brothers. And I have older women who are mothers and younger women who are sisters. And and we should have this family dynamic. And this is true not just of me, but this is true of all of us. We should gather together and worship together and evangelize together and disciple together and learn together and worship together. And we should sit at the table together. This is how we, biblically speaking, grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We do so together as we feed upon word and sacrament as a family. And you know what? That family includes widows. You see, Paul has addressed older women already. He's addressed mothers. But now he turns his sights to perhaps the single most vulnerable and needy among us. And that is widows. And his overarching aim is to make sure that widows are cared for. Because, verse 5, she who is truly a widow is what? Left all alone. You see, a true widow has nothing and no one. We need to remember that in the ancient world, it wasn't like today's world. We have all sorts of safety nets. We have 401ks and the government. We have pensions and we have social security. It is really hard. You have to work hard today to starve to death. But you didn't have to work very hard in the ancient world to starve to death. And so the church is to have her eyes open, open to make sure that the widows among us are truly cared for. And I would just pause and and remind you that isn't this the very heart of Christ, our Savior? Isn't this the heart of Christ to love the weak and the weary, to care for the vulnerable, to reach out to and meet the needs of the neediest. And if that's true of Christ, ought it to be true of us as well. This is what the gospel compels us to do. This is how we know that the true gospel is working in our hearts in very healthy ways. Because we see Christ crucified for us. 
And as we see Christ pinned to that tree, it forces us to look outside of ourselves. And as we look outside of ourselves, we see Christ. We see him bearing the judgment in his own body for our sin. And we see that by grace alone, through faith alone, he imputes to us his very righteousness. And as he imputes to us his righteousness, and as we continue to look outside of ourselves to see Christ, we also begin to see others who are in need. And now, because the Spirit of God is indwelling us and rearranging our priorities and and making us new, now, perhaps for the first time ever, we desire to love and serve and meet the needs of those who are in need. And and let me just be clear, we don't do this in some vain attempt to pay back God or something like that. The reason that the Christian operates in a spirit of gratitude is because the Christian is showered in grace. Just as the engine provides power to the wheels of your car, so the engine of grace drives us to gratitude. And that's what's being teased out here. The church should love widows because Christ loves widows. The church should love widows because Christ loves the church. The church should love widows because Christ loves those who are unlovely. And if Christ has loved us, how can we not in turn love those around us? Let me ask you, you know who else should love widows? And this is where I might get into some trouble. You know what the answer is? Relatives. Blood relatives. In fact, according to Scripture, the first line of defense when it comes to the widow is not the church. It's the blood family. Look again at verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. And that begs the question, well, who is truly a widow? And based upon verse 4, it seems that a true widow is one who has no one to care for her, no family to meet her needs. Verse 4 says, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So let me ask you, Christian, who is to take care of your aging parents and grandparents? You are. The family is. John Stott has put it well. It is a fundamental Christian duty to provide for our relatives. It's not the government's job. It's not even first and foremost the church's job. It is the job of children and grandchildren to make sure that their mother and grandmother is being cared for. Now, if that wasn't enough, Paul then ups the ante in verse 7. 
He says, command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. And the they there, he's not talking about the widows. He's talking about the children and the grandchildren. He's saying, Timothy, you need to make sure to let those in the congregation know that they need to care for their own widows. So why is this so important? Why must children and grandchildren seek to honor their widows? Two reasons. The first is found in the middle of verse 4. To make some return to their parents. Literally, to give back a recompense. It's the idea of mom saying, and I've heard this countless times, and no doubt you have as well. Mom saying, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. And that's true. It's true on both fronts. But the first part is what Paul is talking about. Mom brought you into this world. She literally grew you in her body. She then pushed you out of her body. And then she fed you, and she changed your diapers, and she cared for you, and she rocked you to sleep, and she did about a million and a half other things. Quite literally, you owe your life to her. And so Scripture is saying, now it is time for you to return the favor. You need to make a return. You need to pay her back. The second reason children and grandchildren ought to care for their widows comes at the end of verse 4. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. Brothers and sisters, what brings a smile to God's face? What does God delight in? Except that when we love and care for and meet the needs of our mother and grandmothers. I don't want to be too harsh here. I'll tread lightly, but I'm still going to tread. So many Christians will devote endless time and energy to all sorts of quote-unquote spiritual things. They'll, read their, they'll wake up early and read their Bibles. They'll attend evening services. They'll be part of some young adult's Bible study. And then later in the week, sort of a, a singles group. And then on Saturday, they'll go help these people move. And then on the next Saturday, they'll go out to the park and they'll, they'll hand out water. They'll do all of this. All the while, Grandma is lonely and living on crumbs. James warns us, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. You see, that's the real spiritual stuff, isn't it? You know what the real spiritual stuff is? When we serve others. That's the spiritual stuff. And we serve others... Because Christ has first served us. We love because Christ first loved us. We serve because Christ first served us. This is what the cross is ultimately, right? More than anything else, the cross is a vicious instrument whereby Christ served us. And I say that because it was on the cross where Christ, the unique God-man, submitted to the very wrath of God. It was there upon that cross where Christ paid the penalty for the sin that you and I owe. 
We live in a, a culture where the cross is really like a cultural icon or a, a, a fashion statement. All sorts of people have crosses tattooed on them. They have cross earrings, cross necklaces. The cross is not a fashion symbol. The cross is ground zero for where Christ served us. I think this perspective helps us to understand the harsh language that follows. What if we neglect our widows? What if we don't provide for them? Scripture answers with two stinging rebukes. Two rebukes that ought to cause each and every one of us to tremble. On the one hand, verse 8 announces, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith. I want you to notice there's nothing here about this particular individual denying that Christ rose up from the dead. There's nothing here about this particular individual denying that justification is by faith alone. When it comes to this person's theological report card, he or she is getting straight A's. But even with that report card, he has, verse 8, denied the faith. Do you feel the weight of this? No matter how many right boxes we check theologically, if we neglect the most vulnerable among us, then we have, verse 8, denied the faith. Equally disturbing is what Paul says right after that. Such a person is, end of verse 8, worse than an unbeliever. What seems to be underlying this statement is that, at least in Paul's mind, even pagans, even unbelievers, non-Christians, they understand that it is incumbent upon them to love and care for and meet the needs of their widows. Paul's point is, this is just part of common grace. You don't need a Bible to do this. You, you don't need to be born again to know that you're supposed to love your mom and take care of her. Th th this is just common sense. Paul's saying, the unbelievers are shaming you, church. So he concludes the whole thing this way in verse 16. The end of verse 16. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Calvin hits the nail on the head when he summarizes this way. Before the church has to carry the burden, let the children do their duty. But of course, not every widow has children. There are widows who are, again, end of verse 3, truly widows, which means that they are truly destitute. They have no children. They have no grandchildren to care for them. So in that case, how should the church respond? Verse 3 again. The church should honor widows who are truly widows. And that word for honor, it is a word for respect and recognition. But it goes beyond merely personal respect and emotional support. It goes on to include financial provision. In other words, 
It is the church's responsibility to ensure that those who are truly widows, they have no children, they have no grandchildren, those widows ought to have their needs met by the congregation. Now, this idea of the people of God caring for widows, it has its genesis all the way back in Old Testament law. This is nothing new. And then, in Acts chapter 6, when the church was in its infancy, we see that it picks up this idea and goes out of its way to make sure that the widows are taken care of. This is sort of the, the formation of the deacon ministry. You fast forward to our passage here, and what do you have? Well, you actually have a list. That's what Paul means there in verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled. What he's saying is she should be on the books. To put it in our context, there should be a line item in the budget to make sure that Redeeming Grace's widows are not going hungry and are not living in fear of being put out on the street. It is the responsibility of this congregation to care for those who are truly widows. Now, when it comes to those who go on this list, you have to be more than a widow. You notice that Paul gives three additional qualifications, right? So, assuming that there is no family to care for them, the widows who are put on the rolls must meet three requirements. The first is maturity. Verse 9 reads, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Now, Paul will give instruction to younger widows in a moment, but for here, notice that for the widows to be on the roll, for them to be a budget line item, these widows need to be a bit older. And there's no doubt, for, there's no doubt a few reasons for why that is the case. For example, the older that the widow is, the less likely she has of remarrying, something that we'll see younger widows are prone to do. A mature widow as well, because of her age, she is also less able to provide for herself, hence the reason that she needs assistance. And so because of her age, because of her maturity, she should be supported by the church. The second qualification is fidelity. Verse 9 continues, having been the wife of one husband. So Scripture says, a widow worthy of receiving financial support is one who was faithful to her husband. Sometimes people get all twisted up at this point. They want to know exactly what Paul means there by the wife of one husband. But we should rest assured, we, we have already seen a similar phrase even here in 1 Timothy if you recall, back in 1 Timothy 3.2, Paul instructed us that elders, one of their requirements is that an elder must be the husband of one wife. And if you remember, that phrase basically means a one-woman man. Well, that's the, the same idea that is being expressed here. A widow has to have been a one-man woman. It's the idea that she was known for her exclusive and faithful devotion to her husband, over the course of their marriage. So you have maturity and fidelity. The final qualification we'll call this morning charity. 
the widow who is to receive financial support needs to have a track record of charity. As verse 10 puts it, and having a reputation for good works. She needs to be known in the church for her good works. And then he lists what some of this would look like. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. I would have you to notice, brothers and sisters, that in all of this, she is known for being a servant. Right? By raising children, she is serving them. By opening her home, she is serving her guests. By washing the feet of the saints, she is serving the church. By caring for the afflicted, she is serving the needy. And so I think the point that Paul is making here is she has faithfully served. Now it is her turn to receive such service. She has spent her life pouring into the lives of those around her. Now it is the church's responsibility to pour into her life and to make sure that the church serves her just as she has served so many others. In all of this, I would wonder if you can see a glimpse of Christ here. You look at the language of verse 10, and it speaks of a reputation for good works. Well, does not Christ have a reputation for good works? I would invite you to think about it along these lines. Just as she brought up children, that is, the widow brought up children, so Christ, through his death on the cross, has brought us into the family in God, family of God and made us children of the Father. Christ has brought us up as siblings, as our elder brother. He brought us up even as he was lifted up and pinned to that tree. Christ has also shown the ultimate hospitality, hasn't he? By laying down his life and gifting us his righteousness, he has escorted us in to the very presence of the Father. Beloved, because of Christ... Not because of me, not because of you, not because of your feelings, not because of your works, not because of your experience, not because of any of that, but because Christ and Christ alone, catch this, you and I have a seat at the table. We have a seat at the table. And while the widow might have washed the feet of the saints, verse 10, which no doubt would remove dirt and grime, Christ has actually cleansed us by washing us in his life-giving blood. Christian, it's true, a bath might help get some of the dirt off, but only Christ can truly remove our sin, our shame, our guilt. And I would add that the promise of the gospel is simply this. He has. If you are a Christian this morning, then you are clean. That is an objective reality. It is not contingent upon the week that you had last week. It is not contingent upon the week that you will have this week. It is not contingent upon how you feel or upon your emotions. It is the objective truth of what God has done in Christ. The stain of your sin is no more. 
No matter how heinous of a life you have lived, no matter how heinous of a life you will live tomorrow, if you are trusting in Christ, then you have been scrubbed clean by your Savior. This is true, again, not just of your past sins or your present sins, but even your future sins. Beloved, Christ is truly a Savior. And of course, like the widow, Christ cares for the afflicted. We know this because our biggest affliction, the single most damning ailment that we have, is not that thing in your hip that hurts when you wake up, though that's a real issue. The most damning ailment that we suffer from is our sin. And Christ overcame our sin. He died to forgive us our sin. And then he rose up from the dead, promising to those who are his that your sin will not, I repeat, not have the last word. Christ is triumphant. You will be triumphant. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So brothers and sisters, I trust that you can see Christ. I trust that you can see how he loves you and he serves you and he cares for you. And he doesn't, just, he doesn't do so like just back then that one time when you repeated a prayer. But he does so even now in these moments. You have a Savior who has saved you, is saving you, and will continue to save you. And so you and I, we can rest in him. Now, what about those widows, though, who don't meet the requirements? What about those who aren't qualified to be enrolled? Paul cautions us, beginning in verse 11. But refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Verse 14 now. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Now I will concede there's a lot going on here. But Paul does have three reasons why not to put this younger widow on the roll. Three cautions. For starters, younger widows tend to want to remarry. That's what Paul means there in verse 11. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. But we need to pause. And we need to recognize that the desire to marry is not the problem. We know that if you are in a marriage, it is until death does us part. After your spouse has died, you are free, 1 Corinthians 7, to remarry only qualification in the Lord. As Christians, we are only to marry other Christians. So it's not the desire to remarry here that it is the problem. It's thicker than that. It's deeper than that. I say that because verse 12 adds, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned Listen to language, their former faith. And then down in verse 15 we read, For some, speaking of these younger widows, have already strayed after Satan 
So whatever is going on here, it's pretty major, right? This is like a serious thing. This isn't just remarrying. Some think that what is happening is that these younger widows made a vow to remain single. And you should know that the word faith there in verse 12, it can mean pledge. In fact, if I recall, the NASB actually translates it that way. So the theory goes, these younger widows made a vow or a pledge when their husband died that they would remain single and that they would live the rest of their lives serving the church. And to renege on that promise by remarrying, that would be a serious breach of their vow. Now, that's one view. The other view, the direction that I tend to lean, if that's worth anything, is that these younger widows were tempted to remarry, but they were tempted to remarry unbelievers. Now, I say that because we know throughout 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy that one of the problems or one of the dangers that the false teachers in Ephesus posed was that they would particularly prey upon women and that they would prey upon women not just spiritually, but that they would also prey upon them physically. And so the caution here seems to be that if you are a young widow, you need to be very careful, extremely careful, not to desire remarriage to the point that you compromise your faith in Christ and marry an unbeliever. That seems to make the most sense of the language. In verse 11, they are drawn away from Christ. In verse 12, they incur incur condemnation, and they do so because, verse 12, they have abandoned their former faith. So in in my reading, the stakes seem pretty high. It seems seems to be more than simply a sort of a a vow to to remain single. It seems like they're, they're going a direction that they shouldn't. Let me just say by way of application in passing, if you are a single person, widow or not, particularly a single woman, you are going to be tempted to marry a man who is less than ideal. Now, don't get me wrong. You need to, you need to recognize that Jesus isn't going to show up on a white horse and propose to you, and neither is the Apostle Paul. Most men in their 20s and 30s are really immature and have a lot of growing to do. So I'm not saying that you set the bar so high that you are waiting for Jesus. What I am saying is you need to make sure that when you reach whatever that age is, right, your friends start to get married, some of your girlfriends are having babies, you've been in the bridal shower like 10 times that you've never been the bride, and you start getting those thoughts in your heart and in your gut. What's wrong with me? How come I'm not married? What's the holdup? The the pond is getting smaller to fish out of. What do I do? And all of a sudden, you start looking across the way, and you start compromising, and you start making excuses, Don't go there. You will enter into a life of utter despair if you marry a man who loves you more than he loves Jesus. It will be your undoing. I know it's hard. Talk to your parents. Confide in your father. Come to your pastors. Pray, pray, pray. Remain faithful. Do not compromise and marry an unbeliever. It will be hell on earth for you. I assure you of that. Scripture then issues a second caution, laziness. 
Paul says, don't put younger widows on the roll because they run the risk of being lazy. Verse 13. Besides that, they learn to be idlers. Paul's saying, when, when they have too much time on their hands, and when they're on the rolls and they're just getting a handout, these young women will be tempted to do nothing. Or to say it another way, with too much time on their hands, they will find themselves in trouble. Which leads to the third and final warning for the young widow, gossip. Verse 13 again, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, Paul says, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. I'll probably regret saying this, but this is a particular temptation for women, especially younger women, to be a gossip. Literally, someone who talks nonsense. Rather than being busy, rather than being busy with the business of the church or with her own business, the young, immature widow might be tempted to be involved in everyone else's business. And so for these reasons, Paul cautions Timothy and he cautions us. saying, make sure, redeeming grace, that you only enroll a certain kind of widow. And the kind of widow that we want to support financially is one who has a track record of maturity, fidelity, and charity. Really, I think what Paul is saying, if we could boil it down, is you want to support a widow who looks like Jesus. Now, given all of this, let me ask you, what is the essence of true religion? And admittedly, there are a couple of different ways that Scripture answers that question. Famously, Micah 6, 8 announces, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Or we might think of our own Lord's words as he was confronted by a lawyer who asked him a question to test him. This lawyer walked up and said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Christ, without missing a beat, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Christ wasn't done. He then added, And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or consider Isaiah 117. God says through the mouth of his prophet, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Plead the widow's cause. Along these lines, we might think once again of James 1.27. James tells us that religion that is pure and undefiled before the God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now here's the point. In a culture like ours, one that does not value the elderly very much, a culture in which youth is in vogue and gray hair is out, Unfortunately, and contrary to Scripture, I should add, 
Way too many people view the elderly or the aged as an irritation or an annoyance. And that is even more true, unfortunately, of widows. But according to Scripture, true religion is loving them. And to love them is to support them. True religion, church, is really you and I so being transformed by the gospel that we display the gospel. Here's what I mean. In a sentence, the gospel is this. Christ does for us what we can't do for ourselves. And in a very profound sense, that is how the church should relate to widows. We should do for them what they can't do for themselves. Unless we miss the forest for the trees, we should remember that these widows are our widows. This is why we began with the acknowledgement that we are a family. So these widows, they are our widows. They are my moms. They are my grandmas. And they are yours as well. And so we are to love them. Just as Christ has done for us what we could never do for ourselves, so Scripture calls us to do for our widows what they could never do from their sel- for themselves. And again, this is the essence of true religion. This is what pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is. It's to care for our moms and grandmas, even when they get old and become kind of a pain in the neck. This is why we don't, I mean, we can be honest. This is why we struggle, right? There's nothing controversial about that. I'm just saying what we're thinking. It's easy to love people that love us back. It's easy to love people who reciprocate. It's easy to love people that are lovable. It's very difficult to love those who are difficult. This is why Christ says, when you throw a feast, don't invite everybody that's going to throw you a feast the next weekend. Don't, bring, don't invite everybody to your party so they'll throw a party for you. Go to the weak, go to the homeless, go to the poor. Throw them a party, and then you'll have your reward in heaven. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, we address you once again as Father so casually, but you are our Father, and we are your children, and this is owing to your hand of grace. And we pray for this family of faith, for redeeming grace, that you would continue to knit us together as a family, that we would see ourselves as members of a family as brothers and sisters, as fathers and mothers, and that we would care for one another and look out for one another as a family should and and as a family ought to. We pray particularly for the widows, that we would be a force for good in their lives. We pray that you would help encourage us. We pray that we would not neglect the duty that you have called us to, but that we would love them and care for them as Christ has loved us and cared for us. We ask that you would do these things in us and through us. In the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.